Well, let's turn our attention to the lesson, and um, we'll just jump right into it. The church and its mission. That's really what we want to talk about tonight. Kind of jump right into to, to what, what is the church and what is the mission of the church. Um, and, and we want to speak to that first and foremost biblically, and then specifically to us locally is how we'll, we'll work that. In Matthew 16, verse 18, this is right after... You know, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And they kind of offered some things that people were saying. And he said, but what about you? What do you say? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. And then he says this, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, this truth of who Christ is, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The purpose of this lesson is to define the church, its mission, and to to help each one of us see the importance of our part in it. So to define the church and its mission and and the importance of of seeing our part in it. Um, What what is our vision? What what is our vision as a church? Well, we, we could say it simply like this. We could say, well, we want to build a New Testament church. Well, that's true. Well, what other kind of church would you like to build, right? I mean, can't you know build an Old Testament church? You want to build a you know some other book? I mean, of course, we want to build a New Testament church. The catch is that really doesn't say anything. It's not very well defined because one would have to ask, well, what part of the New Testament are you emphasizing? What what is it you see in the New Testament about a church, right? I mean, you have to begin to define what that means to build a New Testament church. So we really want to try to at least put some parameters on that. What do we mean when we say we want to build a New Testament church? Uh, Give it some clarity. Um, There are a number of offered definitions for the church. I think many of them are wonderful and good. Uh, This is just one that uh, I think at least helps describe what we're after in, in, in defining the church. Not the best way or the only way to define it, but the church is a local gathering of believers who are joined together calling on the Lord in worship and prayer together, serving one another, representing Christ to the world. Okay? It's not 100% complete, but I think it hits on some of the crucial aspects. So let's look at that a little more closely. First, the church is a local gathering of believers. The fact is that every New Testament letter was written either to local churches, or to the leaders of local churches. There's no concept of Christianity in the New Testament apart from vital connection to a local church. There was no assumption that somebody could even hear the Word of God if they weren't in a local church, because there was no other means for them to get it but to go and to have it read to them. So the, the concept of existing as a believer outside of a local church, was was foreign to them. That It's not foreign in our culture today, but it was certainly foreign in the New Testament. The Greek word translated church, it's ekklesia, uh, it's found 110 times in the New Testament. Now, just real quickly, what does ekklesia mean? The word itself was not the first time it was used when it was applied to the church. The word means an assembly, a gathered group of people. It was used in the Old Testament, and when they translated it into Greek, when it spoke of the, the congregation of Israel, the assembly in the wilderness, the congregation. 
Um, it was used in Greek culture of they would gather the city together to talk about important matters. They, they would call the ecclesia, the gathering of the people together. So this gathering is an important element of who the church is. <clears throat> people that are called together, gathered together. And it's found 110 times in the New Testament. Only 17 of those references are to what is often referred to as the universal church. That's the church of all times, believers from of old and of present, in heaven and on earth, whether alive or not alive, you know, today on earth, uh, in any part of the world or the universe for that matter. So the universal church. The other 93 references refer to a local church in some form, fashion, or another. Wayne Mack and David Swave, they have a book, um, it's called Life in the Father's House. It's about church life and what, what does the scripture say about church. And in there, they, they said the following. They said, the Bible clearly commands every believer to be deeply involved in the lives of other believers. The primary context in which God wants this involvement to take place is the local body of believers. And so the commitment called for is also a commitment to the church. We must also commit ourselves to a local or visible group of God's people. And then he goes on to say this. The New Testament does not contain even a hint of someone who was truly saved but not part of a local church. What conclusions do we draw from that? Well, that's up for debate, but that that's a true statement, I think, is, is really undeniable. That that's really the, con- what, what, the way the New Testament presents it. Now, oftentimes people are quick to point out, well, you don't, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Um, it's kind of like saying you don't have to be in the water to be a fish. Right? You don't. I mean, you could take a fish and take him out of the water. He doesn't stop being a fish. Still a fish. Being in the water isn't the essence of his fishness. And being in a church isn't the essence of our Christianness. But, I don't know if you've checked out fish lately. If you keep one out of the water very long, he will not be a very healthy fish. In fact, he might be a pretty stinky fish before long. You keep him out of the water very long, right? It's the context he was made to, to live in. And the church is the context that a Christian was made to live in. And that's evident throughout the New Testament. We're called to be part of God's family, to function and to live in that family. <clears throat> the church is not a meeting. Oftentimes they say, well, I'm going to church. We, by that we mean I'm going to a meeting. I'm, I'm fine. I'm not the word police. You can say that. Perfectly fine with that. But I think it's important to also note the distinction. We aren't really going to church. We're going to gather with the church to worship God. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it consists of people being joined together. And, and, and really, a lot of times, though, we tend, to fun- we, we tend to view church as a meeting when we show up right when it starts, we leave the second it's over, and we never interact with the people there. For us, if that's how we function, then the church is a meeting. But we want to move beyond it just being a meeting to a, a time and a, and, a, and a community of people in which we interact. We do gather together, and those meetings aren't unimportant, but they aren't the church. They're something that we do together as a church. And, and it's just seeing that distinction, I think, is, is important. So the first thing we said, the church is a local gathering of believers. Secondly, the church is believers who are joined together. Believers who are joined together. Um, Bruce Milne 
wrote the following. He said, biblical religion is inescapably corporate. In other words, it's being, people being joined together. Scripture knows nothing of solitary religion. Um, Ephesians 2, 19. And, and let's just follow the, what is said here in Ephesians. Consequently, Paul writes, you, speaking to the, the Christians in Ephesus, are no longer foreigners and aliens. Now, they, they were Gentiles, right? By and large, Gentiles in this congregation. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Now, note those two phrases. In Him, the whole building is joined together. Joined together. It rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And then it says, and in Him, you two are being built together. Joined together, built together. Notice that that's not a, something you do on your own, is it? It's something you do together with others. Joined together, built together. To become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Now the picture that's envisioned there in Ephesians 2 is of a building. And it's actually a particular building. Does anybody happen to know in Ephesians 2 what particular building we're talking about? Kind of building? What's that? Well, the, he speaks of God's household, Yes. But there's a building that he's speaking of in a spiritual way that Solomon built one of in the Old Testament. A temple, right? And that's why he says, a dwelling in which God dwells by His Spirit. In other words, just as the temple was inhabited by God, the church is being joined together and being inhabited by the Lord. And this picture of this building means that we, each of us are stones, if you will, or bricks, however you want to envision that probably stones in that context would have been what they used but stones that were cut you know and in, into in shape and placed in 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 place now there's a significant difference between a building and a yard strewn with bricks you know have you ever seen a field where somebody just dumped a bunch of blocks and bricks across the field we generally think man somebody needs to clean that up right but you take those same blocks and you put them together and you join them together, you can make something beautiful. Right? Somebody mentioned the Methodist church earlier. Downtown, that Methodist church downtown, what a building, huh, that they have. That place is beautiful. It's just, I mean, I just love looking at buildings like that. It's like, that's amazing. It's, it's the, the, how pretty the, the, the way that they can pull that together. But that's, you know, those bricks would not be nearly so pretty on their own, would they? They would not be nearly as effective. They wouldn't be serving as great a purpose on their own. But they serve a great purpose, joined together into a design. Uh, in Ephesians 4, we read a moment ago in Ephesians 2, 19 and, and, and down. Well, here we're going to read in Ephesians 4. Note a different analogy that Paul's using, but the same concept. He says in four, verse 16 of that chapter, From him, Jesus, the whole body. Now, we, we just shifted from a building to a body. So, the whole body joined and held together. Note that word together again. It just keeps showing up in Paul's writings. Joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So, just like a brick is not as 
useful and not as fulfilling its not fulfilling its purpose when it's on its own as, as it is in, when it's in a building that it was designed for. So likewise, the parts of a body. You know, you've got this picture of a body. Each member is a part of it. And, I mean, let's think about it. How much more? Even more than with the building. Body parts kind of really need to be attached to a body to be not only useful, but alive, right? I mean... And if we're just kind of strolling through the park and you're maybe you're doing your, your daily jog and you're running along and you just, you know, as you're running, you happen to notice, oh, there's a hand over there. And you just you wouldn't just kind of like, well, keep running and think, oh, that's interesting. I mean, no, you'd <laughs> you'd, <laughs> you'd be jarred. It might take you a few steps before it all registered. Right. But you're grabbing your phone. You're calling 911. I mean, like there's a, a hand. It wasn't attached. There's a problem here. You, you, you know, this is not good. This is not good. I mean, it, it, pick your part. It's going to startle you, right? doesn't matter. It needs to be attached. This is, this is important <clears throat> that it's attached to something. And Paul speaks of the body being joined and held together by every supporting lig- ligament. This kind of things that join the parts together and, and, and keep us uh, connected. Grows and builds itself up in love. So if we're not joined together, this growing, this building ourselves up in love, this interaction, this edification we talked about a couple Sundays ago on Sunday morning, how this we're to encourage one another through speaking God's word to each other. That happens in the context of togetherness. G.W. Kirby said the following. He said, it is necessary to stress that the New Testament never countenances the possibility of a believer living his Christian life apart from the context of the local church. <clears throat> So, the church is believers who are joined together. First, it's a local gathering. Second, it's believers who are joined together. Thirdly, the church is believers who are calling on the Lord in worship and prayer together. In worship and prayer together. In Acts 2.42, and this is the day of Pentecost, right? Peter preaches that sermon. The people cry out, what must we do? And, and, And then he goes into this second sermon about saving themselves from the corrupt generation. And... 3,000 respond. 3,000 are baptized. 3,000 are added to the church. And it says, in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were, they were devoted to doctrine. They were devoted to, to, to truth. The next week, we, I believe it's next week in the class, we talk about the importance of the gospel and how that anchors us to the apostles' teaching and why that's a vital part of who we are as a church. Very important lesson. But note here, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They were committed one to another. They were being joined together. They became a part of this nucleus of God's people that God is building, a holy people unto him. In 1 Corinthians, so, so that's in Jerusalem, but now in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, a very Gentile community, and he says, to the church, and this is verse 2 of chapter 1, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, and then notice this next word, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So first, he says, to The church, the the ones that have gathered, the gathered ones of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, called to be set apart for God's purposes. And then, 
that local church, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and, our, Lord and ours. And here we get this picture of how the church is both local and global. Right? Indeed, universal. All those everywhere, they're calling the name of our, our Lord. So, it's the church in Corinth, the gathered ones in Corinth, sanctified by Christ Jesus, called to be set apart for God's purposes, Oh, you're called to be set apart for God's purposes together with all those in everywhere that call on the name of our Lord. So there's this local element and then there's this global element. It's never something that, that gets outside of our local expression in the sense that, that, you know, it just can't be this ethereal thing we belong to, but it's actual place and people that we connect to. So that's important on one end. But on the other end, God's working with so much more than just us. Amen? All those everywhere. And yet he does that work as all those everywhere, at least the ones of us on earth, connect in local relationships and, and, and do, do this mission together. So it's a glorious truth, whether we're in London, all souls, right? Yeah. Or then you come to Florida and, you know, you, you connect here. It's we together with them, but it's local here, local there, and then together with each other in the church in Madagascar and India and Germany. And, you know, and, and, and it's just it's the glorious grace of God. So the church is believers who are calling on the Lord in worship and prayer together. And note that in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Um, together with all those ever who call on. That's a statement of worship. Calling on the Lord. Abraham would move somewhere and it says he would build an altar and call on the name of the Lord. In other words, it's a statement that he's a worshiper. He's one who is God-directed in his life. And we are a community of people that are God-directed. We're to be worshipers of God. Fourthly, the church is believers who are serving one another. Serving one another. Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. So, we're called to serve one another. Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, we know that Christ came to serve, and He intends for His followers to... Uh, to be noted, to be noticed because of their love one for another. He says, they'll know that you're my disciples because you have love one for another. And that, that is evidenced most when, when we find ourselves positioned to serve one another in love. We live our lives to serve one another in love. So these one another's, and we could go through the New Testament and they just find dozens of one another's that we're called to do. Well, who are these one another's that we're called to do them with? Throughout the New Testament, they're the one another's we find ourselves in a, in, a, in a context, in a fellowship with. God bless you. Like forgiving one another. <laughs> Presumes that you're in the context of people that you actually have to forgive. They, they had an opportunity to offend you. <laughs> and now you have to forgive them and you have to walk that out together. You know, a lot of times people are like, you know, I, I love Christianity, but I don't know about being in a church. I, Man, there's just so many problems in churches. Exactly. What a great context for forgiving people and bearing with one another. That's what another one another command. You know, a lot of times we want churches, but we don't want to have anybody that we have to bear with. It's like, well, what about that command to bear with? You know, it's kind of an important one. Philippians 2, 
You might be familiar with this. It's, it's, it's a lot of people's go-to chapter in the New Testament. But Philippians 2, 3 through 7. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, he's speaking to the Philippians, and he, he's talking about their relationships in that church context, and he's saying, hey, each of you within that church should not look only to your own interests, but to the interest of the others of you. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So there we have great instruction. And of course, we're called to model, that Christ is the model for what we're called to live out, one with another. You see that there. God bless you. The church, fifthly, is believers representing Christ to the world. Believers representing Christ to the world. Paul wrote the Thessalonians, and this was just a couple of months after they had first been birthed. He had been run out of town. They were suffering persecution. But he said this in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you, plural, you, the church, you, became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Notice that the way they together responded to the persecution they were suffering and what was going on, that they became a model of the gospel so that the, the very message of the gospel was ringing out from them by how they were living it out. It was a message that had a, a model or an example behind it. And and the church is called to be that model to the world. We may not be the Thessalonian model. We'll be the St. Petersburg model. We might be the Ephesian model. Or we might be, you know, and each church had its own model. But we're called to model the gospel. My mom was in church this morning in the second service. My grandson was, her great-grandson was being dedicated. And and she was here. But I I remember, and this would have been probably, uh, see, 96 or 97, we had been in the church for about a year, and she had, and maybe less actually, and she had come down to watch our kids while my wife and I got away for our anniversary. Actually, we'd been in the church just about a month short of a year, now that I remember it was for our anniversary. And, and so we, we got away for our anniversary, and, and we were kind of new to the area. We had not yet moved down to St. Petersburg and um, up in Tampa. And we had a, our, our second daughter spent about eight years where it really was touch and go with uh, uh, death. Uh, it was kind of an ongoing sort of thing. And uh, about three times a month, she would land in the hospital. You never knew when it was going to happen, just did. And so as we're away, lo and behold, time for her to go to the hospital. Now, here's my mom. Got three other kids that aren't going to the hospital. Uh, how do you deal with them? And we're on the other side of Florida down in the Keys trying to get away for a couple of days. So we had given her instructions. Well, if anything happens, just call this number. And we gave the number of our community group leader. And at the time, we called him care groups. But still, we'll just update that community group leader. And, 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 and she made that call. She headed to the hospital. And all of a sudden, there was an army of people that were serving, that were picking up kids from school, taking care of my son who was, I don't know, probably still in diapers at the time. I can't remember. I mean, he was really young. And, and so all this began to take place. And, 
people were coming and serving and picking up and dropping off. She went to get the kids and she met this family that now lives over in Iowa or Ohio or somewhere. I forget where they live now. They've been keep track of them as they move around, but they're in our community group. And we talked to her later that evening just to kind of touch base. How are things going? And her comment, now she had flown down here. She would lived up north at the time. And she said, son, I, I just, I, I don't know how to explain it or describe it. All I know is those people that I met, I've never met any group of people in my life that more looked like Jesus than what I encountered today. They came to serve. There, there was nothing but just a desire to help. And they watched kids all day. I come to pick them up and they're joyous and happy. And they were, she was just, her, her mind didn't even know how to wrap around what she had experienced that day. And that community group modeled the gospel. My wife and I were the receiving benefit, beneficiaries of that kind of servanthood for several years as we walked through that time period. And by God's grace, thank God, my daughter as well now has her second child on the way and seemingly not, no, no ill effects from any of that. And so we rejoice. But what an opportunity to model the gospel that we encountered, my mom encountered, that has had an effect on numerous other people from their own encounters. But that takes place as people purpose together to serve God's will and ways in a, in a community of people. John 13, you're probably familiar with this verse. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. <clears throat> you see, there's nothing supernatural about hanging out with a group of people that you like or prefer, or they're just like you, you have a lot of common interests. I mean, that's all well and good. We call those friends, right? Just hang out with my friends. I mean, you know, and that's good. We should all have friends that we do that with. But that's not the same as the church. That requires no supernatural ability. What requires supernatural ability is to be joined together with people that, frankly, sometimes aren't like us. Oh, I'm single, and they're married, and they've got kids, and, you know, we've had single people serve us when we've had kids that have just jumped in and heroically been a part of that life, and you think to yourself, man, how many singles miss out on that opportunity of life, and young couples with older people, and older people serving younger people that that life doesn't end because we get old and we just have to go hang out with old people. I mean, it's, no, it's the, the life of the body together. And we, and we live life out together, and it's, it's the differences that we bring to the table that call for us to be more like Christ. You, know, you don't understand. Those people just aren't like me at all. Well, you're probably right. I don't understand. But I do understand one thing. How much different is Jesus from you? <laughs> I'm just guessing that the difference, I'm not, I'm not a rocket scientist here, but I'm guessing that the difference between him and you is probably far greater than the difference between you and them. And he humbled himself to serve you. And so how do I then live that out? And the church is that context, that community in which God places me. Where I have to figure out ways to work around schedules with people and and, and dive in and serve. And I don't just leave when, okay, we were having a great time and all of a sudden they got sick, you know. Now what do we do? Well, we, we, we love them through that process. And, and on and on we could, we could go. <clears throat> so, 
You see, the church, the communion of the saints, is about people who are very different but have been joined in Christ. This and this alone will demonstrate something unique to the world. Now, we've defined the church. Let's now define the church's mission. So what is the church's mission? Well, first, the church's mission grows out of Jesus' mission. And there's a lot of ways we could say this and do this, but at at least in one way we could say it is, you know, Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So whatever he's building, I want to be a part of building, right? Because otherwise I labor in vain. And Jesus, as we started out tonight, what what did he say he's building? I will build my church. Now, if Jesus is setting about to build this church, and if builders don't want to labor in vain, they build what the Lord is building, I want to set out to be a part of that labor. I want to join in that effort. Now, the only thing that the Lord left instructions for building is the local church. So I want to find myself in the midst of that. What is, what is the mission of the church? The church's mission grows out of Jesus' mission, but what is this mission of the church? Well, Matthew 28 and Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm building my church. In Matthew 28, he tells the church what their mission is, in effect, and how they're to go about building with him in that kingdom. And, and notice what he says. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, as surely as, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Now, I want you to notice that the Great Commission, as we often call it, or the mission of the church, as I would describe it here, is disciple-making, not decision-getting. Now, let me explain the difference. It's disciple-making, not decision-getting. If if we go back to that analogy of the church as a building that God inhabits, that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2, or we could describe it as a body, but we're going to use the the building that God inhabits. It all comes down to whether you you view the mission as a labor of brick maker or brick layer. See, I think a lot of times people conceive of the mission of the church as being a bunch of brick makers. But I think the mission of the church is defined in Matthew 28 is to be brick layers. Okay. <clears throat> when Arn, he explains the disciple-making goal of the Great Commission as follows. He says, to proclaim Jesus Christ as God and Savior and to persuade persons to become responsible members of the church. To proclaim Jesus Christ as God and Savior and to persuade people to become responsible members of the church. Now, I, th- there's good arguments for and against that definition, but I think he's on to at least a good point. Okay. You see, our goal is not making more bricks, but seeing bricks built into the structure that God can inhabit. You see, I think oftentimes we, we, we betray our view of what the mission is by how we report our progress. People will go and they'll do a certain thing and they'll come back and report, well, we had 354 decisions, or we had 38 decisions, or we had 12 decisions, or we, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever heard that kind of description of how things are in, in terms of decisions? Well, that's well and good. I'm... You know, I, the other day I read something somebody put out, and they, they, they were somewhere in Tampa, did some outreach, and they had 350-some-odd decisions. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I don't... 
But for me, I read that and I think, what does that mean? What really happened? And the truth be told, we don't know what really happened. You can't really know what happened. Because until we determine if those people actually followed Jesus, we don't know whether any of them were truly converted. We don't know if there's any fruit from that. We don't know that they'll be disciples of Jesus. But the idea of counting decisions really comes down to, oh, we made another brick and we toss it behind us into the field and we go out looking for another brick. Oh, here's one. Oh, great. You made a decision. Here's a brick. And we throw it behind us and we keep going and we keep looking for more people to turn into bricks. But the fact of the matter is the only one who can make any bricks is God. We can't make bricks. This is not our job to make bricks. We proclaim Jesus Christ. And then as people acknowledge that gospel, they say they trust that gospel, they believe that gospel, well, then we set out to disciple them. Go and make disciples. And what does it look like to make disciples? Baptizing them, step one, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, here's the entry point, and then what's the job from there on? It's teaching, instructing. It's taking that brick, if you will, that, that God has made, and laying it into the its place, and Helping it get connected and becoming a part of that church. Teaching them to obey the teachings of Jesus. Which are all one another kinds of teachings. Involve our relationships one with another. <clears throat> you see, instead of counting decisions, we, we should maybe turn our direction to how many disciples are bearing fruit. How many people are becoming responsible members of the church? You know, in the book of Acts, when you look at the mission progress, you, you, you actually hear reported how many people were added to the church. The church is growing. The church is, was, was at peace. You know, the church was encouraged and strengthened. You, you hear it all in terms of their community life together. That's how the mission progress was reported in the book of Acts. And, and I think that says something about what the mission was. Making disciples. Disciples are committed, dedicated followers that are joined together in relationship as they pursue the Lord. So that is the mission of the church. Matthew 28, 18, it's a disciple-making mission, not a decision-getting mission. Don't get me wrong, I love it when people decide to follow Christ. I just realize that I can't produce that in people. See, it's not my job. I've, I've done sales. I know how to get people to make decisions. But I understand that when it comes to following Christ... I can do that all day long and I haven't done anything because I can't regenerate a soul. The only one who can really do that is Christ. And so my job is to proclaim Jesus for who he is, not adjust the message to get them and make the right decision or statement or say the right words. My job is to proclaim Christ for who he is and let him do that work. And when, when they're ready to follow Christ, that is evident and will be there for them. But Notice that my job with anybody, your job with anybody, doesn't end the moment they make a decision. It actually begins. It, it, it starts from that point. We proclaim Christ, proclaim Christ, and then as soon as there's a decision, what do we get to do? We get to go about the work of disciple making. Helping them become a knit, knit into the life of the, of the church and the body of Christ and the following the teachings of Jesus and hearing the gospel. Thirdly, I'm going to talk about accomplishing the mission. <clears throat> so we've talked about the church's mission grows out of Jesus' mission, the, the mission of the church and what it is in Matthew 28, <clears throat> disciple-making, not decision-getting. Now, how do we accomplish the mission? 
Now, we're going to talk about this more, and I think it's lesson three or four. I forget which order it's in right now. Um, <clears throat> but um, I, I think it would be amiss not to mention it, at least here. That the fact that we cannot accomplish the mission apart from the ongoing empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have a whole lesson about the Holy Spirit, and that's part and parcel of that. But I, I, I don't want to talk about the mission with, without just t- talking about what we are utterly dependent upon for the accomplishment of that mission. And that's the Spirit's power. We are a God-dependent people, and that dependency is most notably expressed in prayer. Or shall I say that lack of dependency would be most notably expressed in the lack of prayer. Was it, um, I remember the person who said this. I hate to quote somebody and not even know who it is. I know it, it's off the tip of my tongue. Um, anyway, one, one of the, the Puritans, <laughs> one of you might know this quote, he said, prayerlessness is a sufficient evidence of atheism. Well, he kind of put it on the point on it, didn't he? I was like, whoa, right to the heart. Prayerlessness is a sufficient evidence of atheism. In other words, his point being, if we are prayerless, we're depending on only ourselves. We're not depending on God. And so, for all practical intents and purposes, we're living like we're atheists. That's either an amen or a no me, right? I mean, Paul Totgus, I think that's how he says his last name, said the following. He said, A brief survey of the early church's life of prayer demonstrates that we cannot survive without prayer. Devotion to prayer turns common people into uncommon servants of God. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, they were told to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so we read, They all joined together constantly in prayer. And it didn't stop there. Even after Pentecost, they constantly relied on, relied on the power of the Spirit for all they did. They were God-dependent. They were devoted to prayer, Acts 2.42 and 46. So the disciple-making mission of the church is rooted in Christ's mission to build this church. The mission can only be accomplished by a church which depends on the Spirit's power. And that dependency begins in prayer. That's why, why we encourage people to not only pray at home, but we have corporate prayer times. We have a Friday morning prayer meeting. I know it's at 6.30 in the morning and not everybody can make it. In fact, not that many can. But for those that can, it's a great opportunity to join together in prayer. There are those that gather together on Sunday mornings before we even have our 8.30 service. They gather together to pray. And, and the community groups, of course, will spend time together praying and others will gather together and pray. But I encourage you, to, to become a part, find some others to, to pray with, become a part of calling on the Lord in prayer, and we will see the advance of the gospel go forward. Amen? Now, just in closing, I'll just take a f- five minutes. We've defined the church. We've defined its mission. Now I want to turn our attention to how we express or state that mission locally. What, what is our local way of expressing that mission? I've, I've stayed on kind of general terms. What does the new Bible say our mission is? Now I want to How do we succinctly summarize that and say that? Well, our mission statement, and you see it on our sign, you see it, I think, on the bulletin and a number of other things around, um, building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. Now, you might recognize the word building. Jesus says, I'll build my church, right? So building, a faithful gospel witness. That's what the church is, is a faithful gospel witness. I mean, it's what it's supposed to be, right? And so we want to build one that is that, faithful to the gospel both in its proclamation and how we live out our lives, okay? Faithful to the gospel by what we proclaim, faithful to the gospel by how we 
integrate that message into our lives as a, as a community of people so that others can look on and see, okay, they're, they're walking out the gospel. Not perfect, but boy, they're, they're engaging one another in gospel-centered ways. The message has, matches our, our lives. So for, but not only for this generation, we need to connect it to the next or else all we're laboring for is something that's going to die when we die. We want it to go on in perpetuity. So we've got to train our children, teach, teach the next generation, reach out to the campus. That's why we've got a campus ministry. It's all part of this mission and why we, we stay focused in this direction. Now, that's our mission statement, but how do we pursue that mission? And so we've, we've got some values, if you will. Now, our ultimate value is the gospel, which is God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. If you want to sum up, what is the gospel? What's God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ? Now, it might be a little too brief to be a good definition. You know, maybe if you could do a 60-second definition, you'd get a little further. But if I had to give it in two seconds or less, I think that pretty well covers it. God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. And that's at the center of all our values. So here's how we state our, our values. Love the gospel. Live the gospel. Advance the gospel. Let me explain what I mean by those. <clears throat> when I say love the gospel, the, the, the truth is not, the, the next two cannot happen unless we have that one. You can't live the gospel unless you love the gospel. Everything begins with God having revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, and we fall in love with God through that. That revelation, that truth of who Christ is. We encounter Him through faith as we hear the gospel message. And we can never get away from loving the gospel. It's not like that's the starting point. Now let's move on to the next one. No, we always stay there too. Because the moment we leave loving the gospel, then living the gospel only becomes morality and just sort of a do list. And that's never what it's intended to be. I'm forgiven my sins. My relationship with God is bought and purchased for me through Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that next week, what the gospel is, more in its content. But it's important that we always keep in mind that the starting point of how we're ever going to fulfill this mission is starts with the truth of what God has done for us, not what we're going to do for Him. It always starts with what He has done for us. Second, live the gospel. <clears throat> now, I recently heard a, a preacher say that you can't live the gospel. The gospel is what God did for you, so you can't live the gospel. Well, I beg to differ with him. I beg to differ with him because what I mean when I say live the gospel is that, that what God has done for us in Christ, we are called to imitate. We are called to be conformed to the image of his Son. Just as Christ humbled himself and gave himself up for us, so we are called to humble ourselves and give ourselves up for others. That I cannot truly love the gospel without then wanting to be like the one that is the, the object, the, the, the one that we gaze upon in the gospel. I can't truly love Jesus without in some way wanting to imitate Him and emulate Him and become like Him. And you see, young people, they, they find some sports star or rock star or whatever it is, and they, oh, I love that. What do they do? They start dressing that way. They wear their jersey or they, you know, do their hair. You know, it's like they, they go and try to get a job looking like a rock star. Well, unless their job happens to be being a rock star, that's going to be a little rough, you know. <laughs> but they're so caught up in what they are affectionate about that they conform themselves to that. Well, likewise, if we love the gospel, we conform ourselves to Jesus Christ. We begin to live out 
the gospel. We begin to live like Christ. We, another way to say it is simply this. If anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Wait a minute. What did Jesus do? Well, the gospel. He picked up a cross and bore our sin. He bore our offenses. He forgave us our sin. What do we do? We pick up a cross and we bear the offenses of other and we forgive their sin and the pain that they cause us. We bear it without heaping it back on them, just like Jesus did for us. Live the gospel. Live the gospel looks like husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Leadership 101. Live, live the gospel is, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye without considering the log in your own eye? First, take the log out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's living the gospel. Recognizing what the gospel says about my own sin and offense against God and how I've violated God's law and how that's my sin. So whatever my brother has done to me is a speck by comparison. And I need to see that clearly before I'm in any position to deal with something my brother has done to me. Live the gospel. And then finally, advance the gospel. We love it. We live it. We want to proclaim it in every way we can. The gospel story of how God the Redeemer seeks and saves the lost as we are conformed to His image will live to advance the gospel through prayer, by communicating the story to others, and through sacrificial living and giving in order to see the gospel reach others because it becomes a driving passion of our lives. Amen?